Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is attorney Scott Oswald, a managing principal at the Employment Law Group. He has extensive experience with whistleblower, employment discrimination, and wrongful termination cases. He regularly lectures on employment and whistleblower law, and he's authored numerous articles on federal and state whistleblower and employment law protections. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, I'm happy to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. You know, to start with, I was hoping you could maybe clear up some terminology for me. I I hear the terms whistleblower and leaker a, a lot, and I'm wondering if you can explain what exactly they mean. Yeah, I completely get it. I mean, it, you hear it a lot of, out there. It's uh, almost interchangeable in the media, but they really do have uh, distinct uh, definitions, both under, under the law uh, in particular and really in, in how it's used um, uh, in the in the federal sector so so let's uh, let's look at it I mean a whistleblower really is somebody who is disclosing information that ultimately is for uh, for the public good um, the uh, uh, the purpose behind the disclosure generally is to get the information to people who maybe it's an organization uh, maybe it's a, a government agency that actually can do something about it um, the um, the nature of the disclosure itself, the extent of the disclosure, is just enough to do that uh, to to uh, to meet that purpose. So we're not, for instance, just you know uh, disclosing information indiscriminately, and and really that the the, uh, the person is using an established mechanism. So uh, a mechanism that either is provided for by law or provided for by uh, the organization. Um, with the expectation then that the the organization itself will will do the right thing uh, and in, in fact uh, investigate and um, what the law um, then requires organizations to do is is actually to do something with that information I'm assuming a whistleblower does her part and uh, actually discloses using that established mechanism then there are rules out there for publicly traded corporations uh, in the, the federal sector space uh, as it relates to, for instance, sexual misconduct that requires an organization then to investigate and then promptly do something uh, about the underlying allegations. Leaking is very different. Um, leaking is where you know maybe an individual is providing the information for reasons apart from you know, rather the, you know, the public good, as an example, um, indiscriminately disclosing information, uh, for instance, uh, um, to, to uh, uh, WikiLeaks, where, where there might be a, another alternative um, that is provided for by, by law, and uh, where the uh, individual is not careful in terms of you know, what they're disclosing, um, for instance, classified information, would potentially put us into the realm of, of being a leaker as opposed to someone uh, that is, an, in fact, a whistleblower. So a whistleblower is someone who's doing the right thing, following the established mechanism, and, and, and really disclosing only what is necessary in order to uh, potentially correct uh, the, the harm or the, the illegality. Right. So it sounds like established mechanism is a really important part of that, if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, then. It really is, and uh, you know there are 
our um, rules, for instance, the Securities and Exchange Commission has rules that uh, require certain types of whistleblowers, attorneys, um, accountants, people who are in, let's say, the audit function, to actually use that mechanism first before they go outside the organization. Uh, and, uh, and that's a requirement of those rules. And the Department of Justice, when when evaluating um, whistleblowers, for instance, in the in the uh, uh, space that deals with with public monies, uh, will give additional credit to individuals who have disclosed uh, in their uh, corporations internally first, uh, as an example. So, uh, identifying the appropriate mechanism for whistleblowers is important. And if they follow that mechanism, then they're going to be on, on really firm, firm ground. So then by that sort of definition, uh, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, they would be not whistleblowers, but I guess you'd call them leakers, right? You know, uh, I, I, I'll tell you that um, uh, that's a tough, uh, certainly as it relates to Edward Snowden, I think it's a, it's a, a tough call. I mean, we have a judge um, that has come out, um, a very conservative judge uh, in our, our federal district court here that has said that what Edward Snowden disclosed was uh, illegal behavior on the part of the federal government. And that's the classic type of information that if disclosed by an individual um, would, would bring them well within the realm of, of being a whistleblower. So from, from that perspective, you know, I think that that uh, uh, very much um, inures to, to his benefit. The problem, I think, with Edward Snowden, and certainly is the, is the issue with, with uh, Chelsea Manning, is the extent to which information was uh, was disclosed. I mean, in Ed Edward Snowden's case, as an example, the fact that we were monitoring the uh, communications of foreign leaders, um, that, that, that's not illegal um, and uh, uh, certainly was classified. And so th the fact that, that, that he disclosed that information along with what turns out to have been illegal, um, then, you know, it's kind of a strike against him, if you will. Um, so I think that both of those are, are, are tough calls, but it, the, to the extent that, that uh, you know, they can be called up short, it's, it's, it's a fact that they indiscriminately disclosed information rather than uh, um, disclosing information in a targeted way and only enough to expose the illegality. Yeah, so, so it sounds like that's, that gets to, into a really sort of tricky part when you're talking about classified information, uh, any sort of release of it, of course, would, I guess, by definition, be illegal. And so if the classified activity also happens to be itself illegal, it's kind of a, it, it puts a person in sort of a difficult position. It really does. And you can imagine someone in that situation saying, look, I mean, I don't even think that this should be classified information. And how can can a government's uh, agency's illegal conduct be classified? Um, I think those are really good points. And, and that's, that's the conundrum that, that someone who is in the classified space is in. So, you know, what do you do? I mean, if you're a, you have a security clearance, you have access to classified information, you know that what you've discovered, in fact, um, would, would constitute illegal behavior that, the, you know, that, that ought to be exposed. Well, um, there are some uh, 
mechanisms that that an individual has some options they have in that situation and and the first is a disclosure to uh, the inspector general um, within within the agency and the inspector general's act requires agencies to create separate functions within that agency the inspector generals whose whose responsibility is rooting out uh, corruption and illegality in those agencies. So, so that's a really good first place to start. And the law provides protections for individuals who use that route. So that's a that's a really good place uh, to begin. The second possibility is um, to disclose to Congress. So you know we have a, a different branch of government here. Uh, there is a mechanism by which uh, one can disclose information that is classified to uh, a congressional committee that has the responsibility for the oversight of that area. And, and those, the individuals on that committee are, are themselves going to be clear uh, to, to view that information. It has to be carefully done. Um, there are some, some um, uh, prerequisites that, that, that a, a whistleblower would have to meet, but that's a possibility. And the final possibility is to actually notify the, the, the third branch of government, uh, the judiciary, and to file a complaint under seal with a federal district judge to notify that federal district judge that, in fact, illegality has occurred. And the, the mechanism, one of the, the mechanisms to do that would be a, a statute called the False Claims Act, which was passed uh, in the uh, wake of the Civil War by by uh, championed by President Lincoln in 1863. But this would be a way to notify a federal judge like our, you know, one of our federal judges here in the district that found that the government was engaged in illegal behavior, that in fact that illegal behavior was occurring, you know, in the first instance. And do you think that uh, employees uh, of the federal government or state governments, I guess, are are aware of, of these options? I'm thinking, again, you know, in terms of, say, someone like a like an Edward Snowden, would he, you think, have been aware of these options that would have put him in, I guess, a lot better position legally than the route that he chose to take? You know, I suspect that a lot don't. And uh, this is a, a fault uh, of both our, our contracting uh, system um, and, um, you know, and those, those arms within agencies that are responsible for disseminating information about these various options to employees. So, you know, one of the things uh, that is required uh, of uh, contractors when they contract with the federal government is they're, they're required to disseminate to their employees um, information about disclosure, uh, potential illegality that they may, that uh, employees may come upon. And uh, the option in particular to go to inspector general with that information. Unfortunately, you know, what we see is that many of these contractors don't conduct that training. They just simply don't do what they're required to do under the law to notify employees of uh, the routes that those employees have. And, and so it is far too infrequent um, that um, you know, we see agencies uh, either requiring uh, these contractors to conduct the training or that they, the uh, contractors are actually doing it you know, when, they, when they win these awards um, and they come in to, uh, to take over that, that business. Right. Now you mentioned that uh, that uh, there's an obligation for the uh, for the organization to consider and act on 
these these claims. But I'm wondering, what about the whistleblower, him or herself? What sort of protections do people who come forward and use the the correct mechanism uh, have? There are, uh, you know, there are a number of different statutes that do protect employees uh, in these situations. Um, you know, a, a, an important one is a statute that protects individuals who disclose fraud on the government. Um, and this is emanates from the False Claims Act, the one we just talked about earlier. It uh, prohibits an employer from retaliating against an employee because that employee has used the uh, employer's stated mechanism to disclose a potential fraud on the United States government. Billing fraud, as an example, healthcare fraud, uh, mortgage fraud, these kinds of things, to the extent that an employee in the private sector is aware of and discloses the information, uh, she can be protected under those those circumstances. Federal government contractors uh, are have even broader protections in the workplace to the extent that they disclose illegality or a workplace rule violation that relates to that contract, and they do so either internally or to the federal government. They'll be protected from any kind of harm uh, that uh, that an employer might might meet out. So there are. Uh, statutes uh, that are out there, and what we see at the Employment Law Group on a routine basis is the fact that you know employees have they know about wrongdoing, they just don't know what the established mechanism is within their company. They don't know that there are protections that apply. So one of the first things we do is uh, we counsel employees to get a copy of their handbook, let's say their employee manual or their uh, their internal ethics guide. And most of those manuals or ethics guides will have uh, in there a point of contact, someone that you can go to and disclose information uh, that you believe there might be illegality afoot. And what we recommend is that the employee do so in writing. Uh, and uh, you know, a lot of employees say, "Look, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to go out on a limb that way. It would be uh, there'd be a record of my disclosure." But but it's exactly because there is a record of the disclosure that we we recommend it. Then uh, the uh, the organization really is compelled uh, to to look into it to investigate. Uh, there's no question what the employee in fact disclosed to the organization and when. Uh, the employee disclosed the information. So at the Employment Law Group, we're always we're always um, counseling employees to give their employers a chance to do the right thing at the outset, because there really are organizations that will do the right thing, uh, that have an interest in, in stamping out uh, illegality in the workplace. They just don't know about it, and they need to know about it. But it is that, that internal disclosure and doing so consistent with the employer's stated mechanism for for disclosure that is going to trigger the organization's obligations to do something and will then cloak that employee in the protections of the statutes we've just talked about. Right. Now, what about at the state level? Do, do most states have, uh, you know, fairly similar protections for whistleblowers or are there, you know, pretty big differences? There, there really are big differences. Um, and um, so, you know, some states have broad protections like like New Jersey, as an example, um, which had probably has the the um, uh, nation's uh, broadest whistleblower protections for employees of private uh, companies. Other states have protections that are very broad for uh, public employees, those who work for the government or maybe work for a contractor of the government. 
Uh, still others have very minimal protections. Georgia is a really good example. New York um, is another good example of that. So it really is going to depend upon the state in which the employee works or where the employer is located, the extent to which those protections apply. So it's always a good thing under the circumstances to, to just get in touch with a lawyer, to ask questions about, hey, you know, what, what are those protections? What do I need to say in my disclosure in order to trigger the, the particular protections that that state law might provide under the circumstances and where to disclose? Um, because, for instance, an employee who works in Georgia but discloses to their corporate headquarters in New Jersey might, in fact, uh, be protected by New Jersey's law, so long as that employee makes the disclosure, uh, in essence, sends the email to the right place. Right. You know, I, given that there are a lot of differences at the state level, I want to just focus on on the federal level for one final question before I move on. Uh, would you, are, are current whistleblower protections, in your view, at the federal level pretty good, or are there certain changes that you think would improve the situation? Well, uh, that's a really good question, and um, uh, in part, uh, the Supreme Court is going to answer that question uh, later this term. It heard oral arguments in a case where the um, uh, corporate America is arguing that the Dodd-Frank Act's whistleblower protections do not apply to an individual who discloses internally, um, and that it's only an external disclosure to the Securities and Exchange Commission that will will protect uh, that employee in the workplace. Interestingly, this is exactly the opposite of what corporate America was arguing to the SEC when the SEC put the um, its rules in place to implement the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, but if the Supreme Court, as is likely, comes down uh, in favor of an interpretation of the statute where where employees are are not protected, maybe the most important thing to know is that the protections that are out there require employees to act quickly. Um, the um, Department of Labor's Office of Safety and Health Administration administers a whole host of statutes. It's more than 20 that protect individuals who work uh, for publicly traded corporations, who work in the nuclear field, surface transportation, airlines, um, just to name a few. Um, But some of these statutes have very short deadlines, some as little as 30 days. So an employee, in order to protect himself fully, um, will need to to notify the uh, the Department of Labor within that very short period of time in order to to take advantage of those protections. So it's really important uh, to to really uh, talk to a lawyer early um, so that you know what protections are out there and and by when you have to to initiate uh, a lawsuit to the extent you, you you choose to do so. Uh, yeah, I'd like to move on now to another area that I really want to talk with you about, another area of expertise for you, and that's employment discrimination and, and wrongful termination. Uh, I guess, first off, how big of a problem is this in your view? You know, I think it, uh, it, it's, a, it's an endemic problem, um, and, you know, we're, we're really seeing some of maybe the not-so-implicit bias coming to the surface um, over the course of, of, of the last year. Um, but, but we see, unfortunately, um, illegal discrimination in the workplace uh, is, is alive and well, unfortunately, and it, it, it manifests itself in, itself in many different ways. But there's, you know, there's a, um, 
uh, a real uh, pay disparity between men and women in the workplace. Um, uh, that's not new, uh, but maybe maybe the extent to which it it, it uh, is out there, I think, is maybe coming into sharp focus. We also see uh, still vestiges of of, of race discrimination, uh, national origin discrimination on a routine basis. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, where where I think that they maybe certain supervisors who who maybe uh, harbored these biases were more nuanced in their approach uh, until the last year. What we're really seeing now is people coming forward and really talking about these things um, and, and in a much more open way. Um, um, and there's, you know, we're, we're also seeing a backlash um, of political discrimination, quite frankly, uh, views uh, individuals might have on both sides uh, that are getting them into real hot water in the workplace. So um, I think that it, it is uh, um, just as prevalent today as it was, you know, maybe two years ago, but I think it's much more in the open uh, today than, than it was before. And uh, so for civil rights lawyers like myself, um, it, it's a real challenge because, you know, what we, we have to do is, is not only, you know, uncover it, uh, but then and prosecute these actions against companies that in, in many instances, you know, don't want to do anything about it. So um, it's a real challenge for sure. Now, how difficult is that to to demonstrate, because I would think in a lot of cases it would be uh, come down to sort of he said, she said sort of situations or employers could find plausible reasons for why they didn't promote somebody or give someone a raise, that sort of thing, because so, so much of this seems to be very subjective. So how, how does that work exactly? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Well, the way it works legally maybe is a little bit differently than, than it works in practice before a jury. So just you know, um, uh, maybe just a quick distinction. The, the law provides for, um, you know, really two ways to, to show uh, discrimination in the workplace. Um, the first is really that, that kind of discrimination that's out, out there in the open, where someone says, look, you know, I'm not giving you the raise because you're, you're female. Um, or, you know, I just don't like you uh, because of your race um, or, or your national origin. Uh, those kinds of situations um, we're seeing more of, quite frankly, over the last year, but, but they're still certainly a minority. I mean, most, most supervisors are, you know, they're, they're more, more careful and nuanced in, in, in really uh, being open about what their, their true intentions are. It's those cases where someone isn't saying uh, this kind of thing that that is harder uh, to prove. And, 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 you know, what we're looking at is what the law calls circumstantial evidence. Um, We put people to death in this country on circumstantial evidence every day. And so uh, the law um, does embrace circumstantial evidence is just as powerful as as uh, direct evidence of, of discrimination, but it's harder to root out. It's harder to, to show. But generally what we're doing is we're showing that an employer has uh, you know, treated a certain class of individuals very differently uh, than, than other classes, or that they've, you know, they've violated their own internal protocols, their own internal rules in, uh, in um, discipline or in promotion opportunities. Uh, when when we can show these kinds of things to a jury, when we can show that 
uh, it really goes beyond simply one case, but that there's a larger problem afoot within an organization. Juries are more apt to act in those situations than, than in a one-off case. So uh, what we're looking to do is to show that there's a larger problem within the organization that, that a jury has to address. Right. Now, one thing I hear from some people is, well, geez, I, I'm all for you know not uh, having overt discrimination. And of course, I'd never do that. But I feel like things have gotten to the point where I can't make an innocent remark. I have to walk on eggshells around anyone who is maybe of a different gender or of a, or of a different race. And so they feel that it seems to me that things have gone too far the other way. I mean, what, how, how do you respond to that sort of, to that sort of uh, comment or concern? Well, I, you know, I completely uh, get it, and we're 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 hearing a lot of that, um, you know, in in the wake of of uh, some of the uh, high profile instances that we're seeing in the, in the media uh, today. But one thing I want to want to point out is that you know the allegations against some of the individuals that we've we've heard about. I mean, they're they're certainly not in this category. You know, the the uh, the fact uh, that that people are using their power. Uh, in order to, for instance, uh, compel uh, women to engage in sexual acts or, or, or um, you know, other kinds of, of behavior that, that, you know, is, is completely beyond the pale. I mean, that, that's really what we're seeing uh, right now in, in the news, and, and there just is no excuse for, for any of that um, under any circumstance. What... Um, what you're really referring to is a situation where you know someone might make a, a one-off comment in in the workplace. That the thing to know is that the law does not necessarily require uh, an individual be disciplined for for the one-off comment. Uh, generally, what's um, what's unlawful, and therefore, you know what what an, uh, a corporation must act upon is. Um, a pattern of behavior on the part of of somebody. So you know you're making you're making comments on a routine basis, as an example. But but uh, you know even the one-off comment, if severe enough, um, can be enough to get you fired. Quite frankly, and rightly so. I mean, certain certain words uh, are are inappropriate, um, and they are inappropriate in any context, including the the workspace. And so you know my advice to individual employees is. Really, just simply to um, you know, not say in the workspace what you wouldn't say to your nine-year-old daughter, quite frankly. And um, if you know that's it's something that you wouldn't repeat in your own house, then then don't bring it in the workspace. I mean, that's that's a pretty clear rule um, that that you know all of us should follow. And um, and, and so uh, you know, my my sense is that you know employers have an obligation to create a safe and healthful workspace. For all of us, I mean, it's, this is one of the, this is the, the space where, where we're all thrown together, different um, backgrounds, different ages, um, different perspectives, and we have to be sensitive to the point of view of others uh, that, that um, uh, in, in the workspace and employers really, you know, walk a tightrope to, to ensure that that's the case. So, you know, do we just need to check our biases at the door to the, to the extent that we can. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the U.S. Uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that the, that's the agency responsible for enforcing federal anti-discrimination laws. And I'm wondering if you've noticed any differences in uh, approach, aggressiveness, or I guess really anything else between the Trump and Obama EEOC. Well, there sure has been, uh, for sure. Um, first off, I think what, what's important to know is that uh, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, an uptick in certain kinds of discrimination with the EEOC. For example, we've seen a real uptick in claims of, of age discrimination uh, in, in the workplace. And I think that this is a product of, of really two things. The first is we've got people that are having to stay in the, the workforce much longer. Uh, than they otherwise would. The, the, you know, the, the shredding of the safety net um, that, that may be coming uh, in Congress, as an example, um, this, this uh, has a real impact on, on real human beings. And um, if, if that's allowed to occur and, you know, we, we see a, a change in, in Medicare and Social Security, as an example, it's just going to accelerate this process and people are going to have to remain in the, in the workplace longer and longer in order to support themselves and, uh, and their families. So I think that, that age discrimination claims are going to increase maybe um, uh, quite a bit over, you know, over the course of the next five to ten years. We also see an uptick in retaliation claims. Um, before the EEOC, where individuals are coming forward, they're coming forward in good faith, um, and they're experiencing a retaliation. And I think most of the time this is happening because companies don't have a vigorous anti-retaliation policies in place um, in in their companies, or, or if they do, they don't train upon, they train their employees on those policies. So we're, we're seeing an uptick. I think in the um, the change with the EOC in particular will be that the EOC is simply not going to prosecute uh, the number of cases that it uh, that it did during the Obama administration. Um, the the EOC during the Obama administration was very willing to prosecute individual cases um, that they felt were meritorious, <clears throat> and um, that that's a, a real um, a real investment of of time and resources that the EOC, I think, was was willing uh, to put forward, even though even though even under the Obama administration, the EEOC's uh, budget remained mostly static. I think what, what we'll see in the new uh, era of the EEOC is a lot less prosecutions and a lot more what they will will call voluntary compliance with with employers. The reality is, though, is that there there simply is a sector of corporate America that will not. Uh, comply with our EO laws unless they're forced to. And so uh, this, um, this change, I think, in approach will have a real impact, especially maybe on, um, on companies that are not in the top tier, that don't have the kinds of, of anti-discrimination policies and human resource um, organizations that, that are dedicated to eradicating discrimination in the workplace and in, in, you know, in their workspace. Right. And so uh, one final question for you, uh, are there any changes, uh, whether legislative or in terms of enforcement that you think would improve on the current state of things in employment law, anti-discrimination? Well, I do. I mean, if, if the Supreme Court comes down the way we think it will under the Dodd-Frank Act and finds that internal disclosures 
do not trigger the protections of that important law. I think that would be a, a change that that um, Congress can make uh, for sure uh, to protect individuals who disclose uh, um, uh, potential illegality within publicly traded corporations. Also, um, another change that has that has been out there but has not yet been enacted would be a whistleblower provision that would protect individuals who disclose um, uh, tax wrongdoing, uh, for instance, uh, tax evasion, um, potential uh, violations of other tax laws. There is not a currently a statute to protect individuals who disclose that information um, within within corporate America. So protections for for tax whistleblowers would be a, an important uh, change uh, as well. And, and you know, maybe um, given, given the fact that the, the Internal Revenue Service has uh, really a, a, a decreasing budget and fewer resources to enforce our tax laws, a change in the, the False Claims Act, um, which right now excludes uh, tax whistleblowing from its provisions. The reality is that there is, you know, there are literally billions and billions of dollars uh, that uh, are being being improperly uh, uh, withheld from the federal government that, that should be paid uh, as part of corporate America and individual uh, taxes that um, uh, that are escaping detection right now. And if the False Claims Act were were changed to include uh, this kind of of uh, tax evasion uh, that would potentially make a huge dent uh, in in that area as well. So these are are you know changes that that um, Congress could could enact almost almost immediately to protect the the federal fisc in particular and protect quite frankly shareholders um, who um, you know are investing in in corporate America from uh, being fleeced quite frankly. That sounds like some reasonable changes to me. Uh, so with that, we will uh, close. Scott Oswald, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Hey, you are welcome. It is uh, my pleasure and I look forward to being with you again. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Now, listener support is really what helps keep the show going. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also really does help. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguides.com or our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.